you're a mile away and you have their shoes. <laughs> and, and so today we come to perhaps one of the most famous or the most well-known confrontations in the Bible. It is where Paul confronts Peter for his hypocrisy. And while it is uh, well-known and it is a, a passage of Scripture that you might be familiar with, I think it's important for us to be certain that we are reminded of its context. What I'd like to do is just do a little bit of a review and then tell you uh, the direction I hope to go today, and then we'll, we'll look at our text. But it's important that, that we review because we need to recall that this passage of text that we're looking at, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14, it, it's really easy to, to rip this particular text out of its context and try to deal with it from that angle. But I think if we look at it in the overall uh, theme or the overall argument that Paul is making... Uh, I think it takes on a, a, a little bit more vividness, a, a little bit more, um, it comes into sharper relief for us. So we need to remember that where we're at in chapter 2, Paul actually, this is the continuation of a thought. Paul actually began this thought in chapter 1, verse 10, and it continues all the way through through uh, chapter 2. So chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2 is Paul's big thought. And he's making a case, and, and what he's doing is he is defending his person. He's defending his reputation because people have come, he, he's, he's established these churches in the region of Galatia, and a group of people have followed him, and they have taught a gospel that is contrary to what Paul has been teaching. And so the Galatian people, the Galatian churches have been disturbed, and he is writing to the Galatian churches to... Um, make certain that they do not wander from the truth that he taught them. Now, here's what this group of people are doing. Now, a lot of false groups followed Paul. Wherever Paul went, false teaching followed. We shouldn't be too surprised that wherever truth, grow, truth goes, um, fallacy um, follows up behind it. And this was certainly true in the area of Paul's ministry. And so this particular group of people were called the Judaizers, and the Judaizers just simply taught that a person needed to fall, needed Christ and the law of Moses. That one needed, let me just leave it there, Christ and. And Paul was saying that no, in order to be saved, you need Christ. Period. Christ and nothing. And then these Judaizers came along, and we see in Acts chapter 15, 1, and a few other places where they said, in order for a person to be saved, you must follow the law of Moses. And this was the teaching. And the way they went about um, diminishing Paul's gospel was not by taking it apart theologically or point by point, but what they did was they attacked the messenger. And so they attacked Paul, and they simply said, you know, Paul's not really an apostle. He just kind of... He's self-appointed, and his gospel that he preaches is really not true. And you can't really trust a guy who puffs himself up or lifts himself up and self-appoints himself as an apostle. And so really, a guy like that, you can't really believe his message. And so then Paul begins to defend his person. In chapter 3, we're going to see him defend his gospel. But right now, he needs to kind of get rid of this one argument that his apostleship is flawed or self-appointed. And so we see that he goes on in chapter 1 and he says, listen, I'm an apostle and, and I was called by God to be an apostle and my gospel did not come from me, but it came from God. That's his first statement. And then we saw uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I'm an apostle. My apostleship is is accurate or it is true because even the Jerusalem apostles like Peter and James and John accepted me as an apostle. They gave us the right hand of fellowship and they approved. They approved our message. Even though I'd been preaching it for 14 years, I didn't get my gospel from Peter, James, and John down in Jerusalem. They extended the right hand of fellowship and they said, yeah, the gospel of grace, that's what we teach also. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul has made those two 
uh, areas of his defense, that he's been conferred, his apostleship is conferred to him by God, it was affirmed by the apostles, and that his gospel of grace is authoritative, and every other gospel is to be cursed. So that's where we've been. Here's where I hope to go today. He's going to further his defense of his personhood, that he is an apostle and that he is qualified or that his, that his gospel is one that is to be followed and believed. And this, his third defense is this confrontation that he has with Peter. Now, be aware that when Paul confronts Peter, he's not just, you've got to ask, why did he put that in the Bible? I mean, is Paul just some sort of proud individual who wants to puff himself up and show how superior he is to the Apostle Peter. And that's not it at all. I think that this has to do with Paul defending his personhood. And the the way he's going to defend his apostleship is by saying, listen, when Peter, the great apostle, came to Antioch and he was a hypocrite, I stood toe-to-toe with an apostle, with the chief apostle. And I called him out on the carpet. And I said, you're a hypocrite. So I am defending my apostleship by showing that I am unashamed to call out the big cheese of the Christian faith and call him a hypocrite publicly when he's acting hypocritically. So that's where he's going. So his authority to call out another apostle when they sin. So here's why I think Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through, I'm sorry, through 11 through 14 are important for us. And that is we are not as strong as we think we are. I know we think, oh, I've got it together. I'm, I'm a Christian. I read the Bible. I go to Bible study. I'm in church every Sunday. Man, I, I got it together. You and I, let me just put it in the first person. I am not as strong as I think I am. The other reason why we need this is that it is imperative that we maintain truth. That truth must be maintained at all costs. And so let's go ahead. Let's read our text today and look at it. And then I'm going to read actually all of chapter two. Is that okay? I don't need your permission. I'm going to do it anyway. So... But here we go. Um, Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something, I added nothing, added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter and for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and, that, and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For, bef- for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision and the rest of the Jews who also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? 
We, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if... While we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners. Is Christ, therefore, the minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Well, let's pick up with verse 11, and we see that at some point Peter comes to Antioch. And and we're not exactly sure when Peter came to Antioch. We We just don't have a whole lot of reference on that. But we should understand a little bit about Antioch, that it's a very large city. In fact, I believe it was the third largest city in the, in the Roman Empire. There was like 500,000 people living in Antioch, and about 10% of those people, uh, it was about a 10% Jewish population. And so the Antioch church was, a, was actually a fairly strong church. It was a diverse church um, comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Um, it was the mission headquarters for the Gentile church. Um, it was out of Antioch that Paul and Barnabas were sent forth uh, to, to go out and to preach the gospel. And it is at Antioch that, the, that believers were first called Christians. I think it was a derogatory phrase, but they were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. And so Peter comes to Antioch. And what's going on is... Um, Peter comes and, and he has no problem with eating with the Gentiles. You have to remember, there was a the sharp racial division between Jew and Gentile. And so when the gospel came to Gentile regions, there was some controversy as to how do we interact and relate um, with these Gentiles who have now become Christians. And so Peter comes and he regularly eats with the Gentiles. And in fact, we see this for all you kind of grammar people. This is an imperfect tense. And so it has this idea then that Peter did this regularly for a a period of time. This wasn't a one-time meal that one time he sat down with Gentiles and ate. He did this on a regular basis. And we should not be surprised... That, uh, that he did this because you'll recall way back in Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision and he had a vision of all types of food and God said that all food is clean, that there is no food that is unclean and he told him to go to Cornelius and who was a Gentile and bring the gospel of salvation. And Peter went to Cornelius, brought the gospel of salvation. The Holy Spirit came fell upon Cornelius' household, and Peter realized the Gentiles are saved by grace. And so Peter had no problem with eating with Gentiles. I mean, he had a vision. He had a dream. He went and saw the power of God saving these these people who were formerly outcasts from Uh, from the gospel, from the good news. These former outcasts have now been received by Christ, evident by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter had come to Antioch and he had no problem eating with Gentiles. But then Peter succumbs to peer pressure There came a time where Peter separated himself, divided himself from the Gentile brethren. We learned that certain men came from James, and when these certain men came from James, probably this is from the church that James uh, pastored, and certain men came from James, and when they came, he separated himself and would not associate with Gentile brethren, but only with 
the Jews. So these men from James, like I said, probably from the church, the James pastor, we should know you're probably thinking, or maybe you're thinking, that what kind of church did James pastor? I mean, does James go along with all of this, you know, dividing ourselves? Does James actually believe that a person needs to come to Christ through um, legalistic means? You should note that um, in, in Acts chapter 15, that James, along with all of the uh, other apostles, disavow all association with these Judaizers. Paul calls them false brethren. I want you to understand, Paul calls these people false brethren. He does not call these people individuals who are brethren, but they're just a little errant in some of their ways. These are false brethren. These are not believers. And in Acts chapter 14, a letter went out to the Gentile churches saying, listen, I realize, we realize that certain brethren have gone out from us teaching that you must be circumcised to be saved. You must follow the law of Moses to be saved. We disagree with them. They did not. They may have gone out from us, but we did not authorize that message at all. And you'll find that in Acts chapter 15, verse 24. So this this group comes from James's church and they are legalists saying that a person needs to follow the laws of Moses before they can be saved. Uh, I don't think James has, has authorized them while they came from his church. It's just like, well, it doesn't happen in this church, but if some group went off from some hypothetical church somewhere in the area, and some group went off and started teaching weird things. And the pastor would say, oh, they came from my church, but that's not what we teach. So they disavow all association with this particular group of Judaizers. In other words, James does not claim them. They are called false, they are called false brethren. They taught a different gospel, and we already saw in Galatians chapter 1, that anybody who teaches a gospel contrary to the one that Paul teaches, let him be accursed. Let him be cursed by God. And so this James gang uh, comes up to Antioch and they create a ruckus. And Peter is influenced by them and he begins to separate himself and not associate with Gentiles. I just want you to understand the, the, the gravity of this I know that in a fast food culture, we don't ascribe much value or worth to eating together. Um, We just grab a bite and go. But there are many cultures, and especially in the ancient Near East, eating together was, was a big deal. And it was a bond, and it was a fellowship. But not only were they eating together... think that also what's going on here, and I, this is a personal opinion, you can take it or leave it, that oftentimes they, after their fellowship meals, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so what's going on here, I think, is that this isn't just a meal that Peter has separated himself from. That these people are not only having dinner together like our fellowship meals that we have every third Sunday of the month, that was last week, or last week. But every third Sunday of the month, we have a fellowship meal. Peter not only separated himself during that fellowship meal, but he also separated himself in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. This was treasonous. So he not only abandoned them over this very intimate uh, event, this intimate gathering, the eating of food, but also over the Lord's Supper. And so Peter separates himself from people who are Christians because he fears what somebody might think about him. So let's talk a little bit about Peter's sin. And the first area that we see of Peter's sin is his fear. See, fear had caused him to abandon the clear teaching of God. And Peter knew the word of God. Remember, I just... Back in Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision from God. Peter was told by God to go to Cornelius' house. Peter was told to preach the gospel. He saw the Spirit of God come upon Cornelius' household and he said, these people are saved just like we are saved. 
There is no difference. They have the Spirit. They receive the Spirit just the same way we receive the Spirit. And when he's talking about we, he's talking about we Jews, maybe specifically we apostles. We receive the Spirit the same way Cornelius, a Gentile, received the the Spirit of God. And so how can we distance or disassociate ourselves? We can put no further burden on this group of people because God has accepted them the same way he accepted us. And so this Peter knew. Peter knew the Word of God. And now, because of fear, he abandons what he knows. In other words, perhaps the fear of man caused him to abandon the truth of God. He feared men more than he feared God. And I would ask you and ask myself to think about how has the fear of man ever caused you to compromise truth? Has the fear of man ever caused you to compromise truth? One of the great things that we're doing when we're doing our Wednesday nights, we're talking about these people of whom the world is not worthy. And and these were people who feared, who would not fear man. Last week we looked at Mary Slessor If you were there, that's an amazing individual. I mean, if you didn't go out going, oh my goodness, this is probably one of the most impressive individuals. She stood in front of armies on the battlefield, walked into the middle of them and said, stop this nonsense. I come in the name of Jesus Christ. What are you doing fighting? This was an amazing... She feared nothing. The thing she feared was not being obedient to her Lord and Savior. That was the only thing she feared. And when we fear man and the face of man and the opinions of man more than disregarding the commands of Jesus Christ, we are in a serious compromising position. And this was Peter's place. We live in a culture today where things are really upside down and backwards and turned around and evil is good and good is evil. I mean, I'm, I suppose it's been that way for a long time, but I think it's, it's growing more and more intense. And many people fearing being outcast or fearing not being relevant or fearing the opinions of men are adopting or accepting as truth that which is false. I pray that that we are a loving church, but we will never fear standing up for what is true. And it's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to live out the truth. Peter knew the truth, but he would not live it out. And so as we face the wrath of men, that that would be a small thing and that we would rather face the wrath of men than the wrath of God. And we'd rather face the judgment of men than the judgment of God. And we'd rather face the anger of men than the anger of God. I pray that we would face neither, that we would face both, um, that we would grow in favor with both God and men. But if we have to choose, I pray that we would people be people who would not fear the judgment of men. That their faces would not cause us to turn from truth as Peter did. So I want you to think about how has the fear of man caused you to compromise truth? Perhaps you didn't share the gospel. I'm guilty of that a lot. When you had an opportunity, but you feared what somebody might think. Or you feared standing up for somebody for fear of what would happen. The other sin or another sin that was committed when Peter refused to eat with these Gentile brethren 
was that he diminished and cheapened the work of Christ. Peter basically advanced the lie that somehow you and I can fill up the work of Christ. That there is something that we need to do by, uh, by siding with these individuals who believe that Jesus and something else is what we need to be saved. Jesus and the law of Moses is necessary for salvation. By siding with them and rejecting his Gentile brethren, he propagated the lie that there is something that man can do to fulfill the salvation that Christ won on the cross. That's a sad day. This is why these people are false brethren. They're just not in error of some minor teaching. They have abandoned Christ because they have cheapened the atonement of Christ. That's just an area of truth that we do not um, play around with. We, we should not be surprised about this because going way back, even into the book of Genesis, Genesis, I believe, chapter 4, and, and we saw Cain and Abel. And Cain comes to God on his own terms. People forever have tried to come to God on their own terms, believing, let me come to you and I'll bring you what I think you need. But God has laid out very clearly as to how we are to approach him. And we approach, we approach God by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and it is sufficient. It is totally sufficient. That the work that Jesus did when he said it is finished, he really meant it. It is finished. To think for a moment that you can somehow add to the work of Christ is either the height of arrogance or the height of foolishness. Thanks, Jesus, for your death on the cross. Now, you know, it didn't quite get everything done. You missed a few areas. Here, let me fix that for you. Really? You're going to tell the Lord of the universe that somehow his work on the cross wasn't quite good enough? Is that where we're going to stand? See, that's where these Judaizers were coming in. They're saying, yeah, the work on the cross is really, really good, but you need to fill something up. You need to do something and add to that. God forbid we ever say something like that. The work of Christ is sufficient, and you are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 and following. Ephesians 1 is an amazing chapter. But basically, you've been redeemed by His blood. You have been redeemed by His blood. His life for years. It is complete. It is done. It is sufficient. For those of you who desire salvation, I will tell you this. I don't know everybody in here. I don't know your walk with the Lord. I don't know where you stand with Christ. But when Christ died on the cross, he died once and for all for for sins. And you can come to him by faith, believing that his work was sufficient, and you will be saved. And so Peter's sin was the result of fear, but it also cheapened the work of Christ. And finally, it creates a false hierarchy between Christians. I would encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 2.11 through chapter 3 because Paul spends that whole time dealing with whatever hierarchy there is in the church, it has been destroyed by the work of Christ. There are no haves and have-nots in the Christian church. None of you have more of the Spirit than anybody else does. The Spirit is given to you, and you have the Spirit of God. The Spirit is a person. He's not a force that gets meted out. He is a person. And on the day you became a Christian, you, you, were, you got the Spirit of God. In fact, Paul goes on and says, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't belong to Him. And there, are, there is no such thing as Christians who are... There is no hierarchy of Christianity. We are all sinners saved by grace. I am not a greater Christian because I am a pastor. I have a certain function that I do, and within the church structure, there is a certain authority that, that I may have. But I want you to know my salvation is no better than anybody else's salvation. I came to Christ as a sinner 
and I am wholly and completely dependent upon His work on the cross, completely. I sin just like you do. Like I said, in the church, there's certain authority conferred upon me to, to run the church. But I struggle just like you. I am not a superior Christian. Some, of, some Christians are more mature, maybe been in the faith longer, maybe have, uh, have grown a little bit stronger. But, there is, but even the most mature Christian in this church is no more saved than the person who has first called upon Christ. They are just as saved. And see, Peter has created this false hierarchy as, well, there's this group of really holy people who follow the law of Moses, and then there's you, and you guys are kind of saved, but we're really saved. And there is no place for that in the church. And it divided the church. And so Peter's sin was heinous in that he succumbed to his fear and that he cheapened the work of Christ and he divided the church. Here's our lesson with Peter. Great leaders fall. Great leaders fall. Even the best leaders fall. Even Peter falls. Sometimes we like Peter because he's so relatable to us because he falls all the time. Right? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then immediately, what does he say? Oh, you're not, you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus ascribes those words to Satan. Peter's the guy who gets out of the boat in great faith and then two seconds later takes his eyes off of Christ and sinks. We like Peter. We relate to Peter because that's how most of our lives are. It's a moment of great faith and strength and the next minute we're doing something going, where did that come from? But even great leaders fall. And this is why we need to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Many people will say to you or may say to me, well, you know, I used to go to church, but I knew somebody and they extorted a bunch of, they were the secretary and the financial person and they extorted a bunch of money from, from the church and I don't know about all of that. To which we reply, have you considered Christ? Is there any fault in him? And somebody is going to come and say, well, I used to know a guy and he claimed to be a Christian and, then, and he goes and runs off with his secretary and has an affair. And I don't know about that whole Christianity thing to which we reply. Have you considered the empty tomb? And that Christ is risen from the dead and reigning and reign, ruling and reigning in heaven right now. Have you thought about that? How do, you, how do you account for an empty tomb? What do you say to that? And what are the implications of Christ being dead and now alive forevermore? Have you thought about that? To which they reply, there are too many hypocrites in the church. And we answer, there's room for another one. So come on in. I see empty seats. To a certain degree, we all fall short. And even after coming to Christ, we make mistakes. I would encourage and exhort you, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If you look to me, I guarantee you, I will make mistakes. Guaranteed. I will offend you. I will say something that's not right. I will act in a way that is ungodly. I can guarantee it. Not because I desire it, because I am still waiting for Christ to completely glorify and bring all things to its summation. And until that day, we will fall and we will stumble. And this is why we look to Christ. Well, Peter's not the only one who ended up in problems because it tells us then, Paul says, that even all of the other Jews followed, even Barnabas. Barnabas. Paul's faithful companion, Barnabas. The son of encouragement. The guy who went to Paul and said, hey, you guys, here's Paul. I know he's a murderer, but you should accept him. That Barnabas. Even that Barnabas got sucked into this whole thing. Folks, sin is contagious. 
Do not think for a moment that when we fall short of God's glory, that it's just some personal thing. It's between me and God. It is not. And especially if you are a leader, you will drag other people with you. Peter's hypocrisy spread to other, others. And sin is corporate. Well, in all of that, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that, but I want to talk about Paul's response. I think it's important because we hear that Paul calls Peter out. And first of all, it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Or I opposed him to his face. As I was thinking about this, meditating on it, and and looking at how this whole thing goes together, something at least new to me came out. Maybe this is old hat to you. But here's what I realized that to me a light bulb went off and I thought it was really cool. So you mind if I share it? Because I'm going to. When it says that I withstood him to his face, I realized that this is a defensive term. See, when we think about confronting somebody, we think that the confronter is the aggressor. Well, he confronted so-and-so. The one who confronts is the one who's aggressive. He's the aggressor. He's the attacker. That's not true. Paul says, I withstood him to his face. Paul's not the aggressor. Paul's the, the defender. The aggressor was Peter and his sin. When Peter sinned, Peter was making a thrust. Paul was simply defending that thrust with opposing him. So when Paul... When Paul opposes Peter. Paul is not the aggressor. He's simply deflecting the blow of Peter's sin. Peter is the aggressor here, and Paul is the defender. Think about that when we confront somebody. Oftentimes, you're not the aggressor. You're simply opposing or defending an attack of somebody else's sin. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul's not on the aggressive. He's defending. And he's resisting sin by declaring truth. So I opposed him to his face. I defend, basically I'm defending the church. I'm defending the gospel of Christ from this blatant sin that is dragging everybody along with it. So I opposed Peter to his face, which is interesting. I opposed him to his face. In other words, I didn't form a little committee after the Bible study and go out in the parking lot and talk about Peter. I didn't form a little group and get on the phone and say, well, you know, about Peter. Nice guy, but did you see what he did? What do you think we ought to do? There was no coup in the Antioch church begun by Paul. Paul says, I took this to where it needed to go. I went straight to Peter. I took it straight to him. I did not go behind his back and I did not gossip and I did not slander. Peter, he went straight to Peter's face. This also assumes accountability. This assumes that we need one another. I know people say, well, it's just between me and God. It is not just between you and God. We are accountable to one another. We hold one another up in truth. We need to love one another enough to tell us the truth. Because oftentimes when we go astray, we don't even know it. It's one of our brothers or sisters that comes to us and says, man, you kind of went off a little bit here. I had no idea. There are no spiritual lone rangers. And so I opposed him to his face and Paul opposed him publicly. Now this is an interesting passage here because Paul opposes Peter publicly and the next question, I know you all have, so I'll address it, is well what about Matthew 18? Matthew 18 says if your brother sins against you, go to him privately. And Paul seems to ignore that text and goes and exposes Peter publicly. What about that? First of all, Matthew 18, if a brother sins against you. Augustine said it's not advantageous advantageous to correct in secret an error which occurred publicly. See, here's the thing. When we try to understand the truth of Scripture, we need to compile all of Scripture together before we come to a conclusion. And Matthew 18, when it comes to church discipline, Matthew 18 perhaps is one of the most important texts we have in that area. However, it is not the only text that we have in that area. And another text that we have in that area is in 1 Timothy 5.20. I think I have it up on the screen Maybe, yep, I did. Those who continue, 
basically he's talking about leaders here. Those, who, those leaders who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. So now we have this idea of a public sin by Peter and Paul publicly rebuking him because Peter, as a leader, sinning publicly and dragging the whole church into heresy, Paul says, you know what, we do not have time to sit down over a cup of coffee and say, Peter, you know, we need to work this out. No, you are in error right now, Peter. This type of rebuke, however, does need careful consideration. Paul goes on in 1 Timothy saying, be cautious about all confrontation when rebuke, we uh, correct another brother, does need careful consideration. But Paul says, your actions, Peter, aren't lining up and it's dragging the whole church down. It is bringing the whole church into heresy. Not just some little mistake, not just a personal preference. It is dragging them into sin. So first of all, make sure sin's going on. Not just somebody's offended your personal preference. Make sure it's a sin. And Peter was sinning. This wasn't a personal preference of Paul. He's dragging the people into heresy. Peter, or Paul says, your actions, Peter, they, they don't line up. Your walk does not match your talk. See, Peter's creed was good. He knew the truth, but his deeds fell short. And I like Paul's approach. He asked him a question. How is it, Peter, that you being a Jew live like Gentiles, but you require Gentiles to live like Jews? That's a really good question. And that's a great way to approach um, this. You know, he didn't call Peter some great heretic. You heretic! You're going to hell, Peter. You may have thought that. That's not what he said. Here's what he said. Peter, how is it? Let me ask you a question, Peter. How is it that you being a Jew act like a Gentile, but you require Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me ask you that. That's the question he asked publicly. You're you're living inconsistently, Peter. How come you as a Jew get to live like a Gentile, but you're making Gentiles live like Jews? That doesn't make any sense. Have you thought about that, Peter? Because that makes no sense. Oftentimes asking a good, probing, relevant, God-inspired question is enough to get people to say, hey, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. It's not a rant. It's not hateful. It's not a hateful tirade. He simply points out Peter's inconsistency. He is allowing God to fix Peter. Paul's not fixing Peter. He's asking him a question. And I love, and this is interesting because all of this in light of Galatians 6.1, because in Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. This is exactly what Paul did. Well, I'm going to hustle on. I do want to talk a little bit about the results of this. And then we'll be done. Because it's interesting. We have Peter, Barnabas, and Paul. And this big brouhaha building in the Antioch church. Perhaps happening at a potluck. Can you imagine a fight breaking out at the potluck? (laughs) Getting into fisticuffs or whatever. Well, that's not what's going on, but imagine that. But I want to look at what ended up happening to the relationship between these three individuals. Did they separate and hate one another and say, I'm never going back to that Antioch church as long as I live? Here's what we know. Barnabas and Paul continued to work together. Peter called Paul our dear brother. And Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and named Peter as one of the important leaders. Do you see, after this confrontation, they didn't hate one another. They didn't divide. They didn't go and hold their little grudges and, well, I'm going to start Second Baptist Church of Antioch. That's what I'm going to do. No, they didn't do that. It appears to me that after all of this got done, they still loved one another, still called one another brethren, and still considered it a privilege to worship together. That's what seems to happen. We are so easily offended. Like I said, 
Come to this church long enough. We'll make you mad. Or we'll fail you. I say this a lot because it's true. We're not perfect people. But let's work through those things. Let's love one another. Let's grow in grace. Let's grow up. See, loving confrontation should have unity as its goal. And so I'll I'll conclude with this. I guess we should probably ask ourselves, who can we relate to? I suppose at some point we, we can probably relate to all of these people, but let me ask you where you're at right now. Are you more like Peter that you know the truth but you're not living it? Is that where you would see yourself right now? If so, I want you to know that Peter went on uh, continuing to be a great apostle, a major player in the church, saved and in the presence of Christ right now. And so I would ask, I would let, I want to let you know that if you are in the place of Peter, that you know the truth but aren't living it, that, that to repent and call upon the name of the Lord and he will forgive you. Just like he did Peter over and over again. Perhaps you're more like Barnabas, that you're influenced by errant leaders. You've been following weird teaching. It's time to abandon that. There's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we learned in chapter 1 that everything else is to be accursed. Every other means of salvation, every other word that claims to save is to be accursed. But Barnabas was swayed by errant leaders. Third, are you more like Paul right now, upholding the truth even when others abandon it? Sometimes that's lonely. So think about that. I suppose in our lives we are at some point in time like every one of those. Sometimes I feel like I'm upholding truth. Other times I feel like, you know what, I know the truth but I'm not living it. But God has given us grace. The book of Galatians is a book of grace. And so I would pray that wherever you may be on this, if you're Peter or you're more like Barnabas, that you would spend some time and reflect and call upon the Lord. So let's pray and ask God to be with us and to reveal to us our hearts. Our gracious Lord, we come before you this day. And we hear your word and we respond to it. Father, I suppose there are some here today who are like Peter. They know, they know your word, but they, their actions are not matching what they know to be true. Father, I pray for that, per, that, that person, those people right now in this congregation who are um, identifying with Peter. I pray, Lord God, that they would call upon you, that they would seek your forgiveness, and that they would return to you They would call upon your name and live their lives in a way, Lord God, growing in maturity so that the pattern of their life is that their actions match their beliefs. And they would live that out. Lord, have mercy upon them. Forgive them of their sins and call them to repentance. I pray, Father God, for those who have been following errant leaders, maybe believing things that are popular in society and in our day, Lord God, but don't align with the truth of Scripture. I pray that you would reveal that, that they would confess their sins, Lord God, and that they would align themselves with your purpose and live for that. I pray, Father God, for those who are standing for truth. Sometimes it seems like a lonely battle. Sometimes we cry out like like Elijah, who said, I'm the only one. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give strength to those who are upholding truth and standing for truth. Grant them favor and passion. And so, Lord, I pray that you would show us where we stand with you. You'd reveal that to us and cause us to love you. Let us realize, Lord God, that we can add nothing to our salvation, that you and you alone are the one who redeems us. And we thank you for Christ our Lord. 
And we pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand. Amen. Well, I guess I could just say goodbye, or we could bless one another before we go. How about we do that? Let's bless one another. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Be blessed.